0: Welcome to Smart Talk, I'm Scott Lamar. The first iteration of a repeal and replacement for the Affordable Care Act was unveiled by House Republicans last week. It was met with wide criticism on both sides of the aisle, as well as many consumer and medical organizations. Nonetheless, the proposal cleared the House Energy and Commerce Committee following 27 hours of intense debate. In January, Republican Congressman Charlie Dent of the Pennsylvania's Pennsylvania's 15th district, which covers Lehigh County and parts of Dauphin, Berks, and Lebanon counties, voted against dismantling the ACA, known as Obamacare, even though he had serious concerns. It's one of the issues we'll discuss with Congressman Dent for the next 30 minutes. Congressman uh, Charlie Dent, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you for having me on the show. Great to be with
0: you. And let me tell our listeners at home, this is an opportunity for you to ask a question or make a comment of Congressman Dent. one eight hundred seven two nine seven five three two, 729 7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. The American Health Care Act is the name of the plan devised by Republicans in Congress that would replace the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. You've said that there are parts of this proposal that you like and some others that you're waiting to see. What do you like about the plan, Congressman?
1: Well, let me first say, uh, again, thanks for having me on the program. Uh, there there are, there, are a couple of things here, Scott. Um, I feel like there's been too much talk up to this point about arbitrary timelines and deadlines, all to help improve the baseline uh, <coughs> as it relates to tax reform. Uh, and and it seems to me this discussion ought to be centered more around uh, the people who will be impacted by our decisions. Uh, as you pointed out, there are a lot of folks who are impacted um, in our state in Pennsylvania. There are about 700,000 people who've been part of the Medicaid uh, expansion, and probably at least another 400,000 or so who have you know have, have uh, received additional coverage probably through the exchanges. So these are some of the issues that I'm looking at. Uh, right now, I'm, my, my principal concern is how will the, Medi- the Medicaid language in this bill affect those who are currently on the expansion, uh, not just in our state, but in other states where there's been an expansion? Second issue uh, will the tax credits that are refundable and advanceable uh, be sufficient uh, to ensure that uh, people can purchase health care, uh, particularly compared to what many of them may be receiving now um, uh, through the subsidies on the exchanges? So those are some of the issues that I want to understand um, uh, you know, as we move into this. We have not yet seen a CBO score, though I'm anticipating one this week, maybe as early as today. Uh, so that's what I'm I'm looking at right now. I want to make sure that people are going to be able to continue to receive coverage that there be no disruptions, because there are very serious problems with health care law, obviously. Uh, the individual insurance market is completely broken. We all know that. Um, and if that's, what is, if that's the piece of Obamacare that is collapsing, the individual insurance market, and no one's yet figured that out. Uh, so that is uh, going to require our immediate uh, attention.
0: When you say you're waiting for the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office report, it could come out today, could come out tomorrow, sometime this week. What in particular will you be looking for?
1: Well, I'll be looking at a number of issues. Uh, clearly, uh, on the CBO score, i want to understand um you know, the number of people, uh, you know, who will be covered or not covered, whatever the case may be. We'll certainly want to understand the implications as it relates to the uh, uh, the deficit and the, and the long-term debt. Uh, those are probably some of the uh, the two uh, major issues that we'll uh, want to see. And, and, frankly, there'll be other issues that we'll be looking at, whatever. I mean, there be, might be other surprises in there, too. Uh, but, uh, but probably, you know, the number of people covered, and, uh, you know, the deficit, that issue.
0: You know, I know it's hard to say one way or the other uh, specific without knowing specifics, Congressman, but what would it take for you to support this bill, and what would it take for you to oppose it?
2: Well,
1: I mean, there, there's, there's this other little issue, too, called the U.S. Senate, I guess, that we really haven't <laughs> talked about yet. Um, this, uh, you know, I, I, th- I believe there are many members like me in the House who uh, would like to... I was always, you know, call me an optimist. But maybe, <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe I'm looking at the world through rose-colored glasses here. But I always thought there might be some potential for some bipartisan collaboration on health care, because I've talked to many Democrats in the Congress who recognize that there are many shortcomings of the health care law, uh, and, and I guess the other frustration I have is some of my colleagues on the hard right, you know, who will, they will denounce any type of. Uh, any type of health care law replacement as Obamacare-like And that's what you're hearing right now I've been saying that for months uh, So uh, so the, the question is Can we get people, reasonable people on both sides You have those on the left who don't want to acknowledge Any deficiencies in the law, and there are many But many of the Democrats do know their problems And there are a lot of Republicans who clearly understand their problems and, and so at the end of the day I've always felt that we need a health care reform That would partially repeal Partially repeal um, Obamacare Partially replace it. Uh, We will have to certainly repair and reform parts of this, and then we will retain parts of the law. I mean, I think that's where this should end up. Now, I would like to think we could do this on a bipartisan basis. Um, uh, Apparently, that's not happening right now in the process that's you know going through the House. I mean, we're not going to get any Democrat support here, and I'm told by my friends in the Senate. In fact, just before I came on this program, I was interrupted by one senator. I said, I'll, I'll call this particular senator right back after this program. Uh, I just want to get a better sense of the Senate because my feeling is the Senate is not going to uh, pass this bill, certainly in its current form. Uh, and so I, I think there's, there is there's a greater need for negotiation uh, prior to uh, uh, advancing this particular bill.
0: All right, let's take some phone calls. Bill is in Lancaster. Bill, you're on the air.
3: Good morning, Scott. Good morning. Representative. Uh, You might be the wrong person, because it sounds like uh, you sort of support health care. But I will throw out a comment and a question. Number one, um, if this is going to be such a great bill for everybody in the United States that needs health care, how come the Congress exempts itself from having to participate? The second question or comment is... I constantly hear about all the great savings that we're going to get that's going to reduce the cost of this by competition. Uh, the last time I heard this was a number of years ago, and I have two words for you. Cable television.
0: <laughs> hey, thank you very much for your call. I don't know <laughs> if I've heard health care compared to cable TV, but uh, I, I know where he's coming from. Congressman, what do you think? Which-
1: which maybe lose? Uh, what was the first question? <laughs> first question was by uh,
0: Congress exempts itself.
1: Oh yeah, Congress exempts itself. Well, first, uh, as it relates to the ACA, uh, uh, Congress actually is uh, members of Congress are in the exchanges. Um, they're they're in the exchanges now, so I I don't know that uh, <clears throat> that would necessarily change. I have to you know look at the fine print of this bill, but as it stands now, you know members of Congress and their staffs have to buy health insurance through the exchanges. I, I, I haven't seen anything that would – I don't know if this bill changes that or not.
0: One thing, though, that Bill does bring up with a second question is, you know, the idea behind uh, rates coming down, would there, there would be more competition. Okay, yeah. that's one thing. Do you actually see – and that's what the CBO will be – one of the things we'll be reporting on is rates actually coming down.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, we want to understand that, uh, what the impacts on rates will be. I, I do think that if the reforms are done properly, you will get more insurance companies back in the marketplace. That will in, it certainly inject an element of competition. The question I have is, if we get that competition, that's, that would be terrific, believe me. It will be terrific. Now, the, But the issue is that people are currently being subsidized, and it appears tax credits um, may not be comparable to the subsidies. Now, if the... If the, if the uh, price of the insurance products are considerably lower, uh, then, you know, of course, the tax credits won't have to be exactly the same as the uh, the amounts of the uh, the subsidies. But it seems to me that they're still uh, a, a bit light, you know, given the, the subsidies. I mean, the, the tax credits are a bit uh, short on dollars just because of the... Uh, I've seen some uh, numbers from the Kaiser Family Foundation that were showing there's a, a, a pretty big discrepancy uh, between what the... Uh, a tax credit uh, would provide uh, versus the uh, current ACA subsidy. So, um, you know, that's that's really the issue. Will there be enough competition to make up that difference? And at the moment, you know, call me a little bit skeptical.
0: Yeah, and that's I think that's one of the parts of this that, uh, besides the fact that that there could be uh, a lot of people. Uh, who couldn't get insurance or couldn't afford it, is that, uh, you know, one thing we keep hearing is that uh, some of the weight will go toward older Americans uh, and that, you know, those who are the sickest and maybe uh, uh, more apt to have health problems. Uh, let's take another call from Paul in Harrisburg. Paul, you're on the air. Good
3: morning. Good morning. Good um- morning. I wanted to ask about, uh, as part of the health care expansion, uh, a lot of the cost is shifting to the states over the next few years. Um, now, a lot of people aren't talking about it, but states like Pennsylvania, uh, we have large budget battles every year. So uh, how are states like Pennsylvania going to be able to afford um, health care expansion under the current and
1: any proposed legislation?
0: Thank you very much for your call. Congressman?
1: Yeah, the, the the uh I guess that really speaks more to the Medicaid issue if I understood the yes, caller's yes, questions correctly. Yes. Um he, look the one of the one of the the, the perverse uh disincentives under the health care law was when the when the Medicaid program was expanded. It was expanded in a way that for the people who became uh, uh new to the health care law or Obamacare exchanges, those people uh were getting or would now be getting a ninety percent uh, I should say the states will be getting a 90% uh, reimbursement. But for traditional Medicaid in Pennsylvania, you'll, uh, the state would receive about a 55% match, not a 90%. So if a state gets in trouble going forward and we maintain a 90% match on Medicaid for the uh, for the Medicaid expansion, those who are on traditional Medicaid, and those tend often to be the, uh, the most disadvantaged, uh, disabled, and, and others with some real severe problems. Uh, the states will be incentivized to cut that aspect of Medicaid because the reimbursement from the federal government is less. Why would they cut, you know, uh, the, the Medicaid expansion program and a 90% reimbursement? And, and frankly, it's a largely more of an able-bodied population. Why would they do that um, when, the, you know, because it's going to cost them money? Um, <laughs> it'll cost them a lot more money, uh, you know, to cut uh, the expansion than to cut the traditional Medicaid. So there's this perverse, you know, I guess it's an incentive, you know, to uh, cut the more severely uh, challenged if states get into trouble. I mean, that's the – so Medicaid, we all agree that the – you know, I I think the Medicaid genie is out of the bottle. Medicaid has been expanded in over 30 states. I'm not sure how we – I don't know that's going to be undone. But having said that, Medicaid needs to be substantially reformed uh, because of the the challenge I just identified. So uh, that's not a great answer to the caller's question, but uh, the states are under pressure to cut. Uh, They will go after Medicaid. The question is, will they go after the Medicaid expansion? I don't think so. With 90% reimbursement, they'll go after traditional Medicaid.
0: We'll take more phone calls in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. Our guest today during this portion of the program is Congressman Charlie Dent. He represents parts of uh, Le- well, Lehigh, Lebanon, Berks, and Dauphin counties. If you have a question or a comment, 1 800 729 7532. Send an email to smarttalk at org. Congressman Dent, one thing I'll say to you before uh, we do get back to some more phone calls many of your colleagues have, uh, I don't know, they haven't been really anxious, they've been kind of anxious, I should say, to have town hall meetings. So I do appreciate you coming on today what about you are you going to have uh, town hall meetings
1: um I'll, I'll be having a telephone town hall this evening actually uh that's something and I, I believe we will have a town hall at some point in the future uh candidly uh my schedule has had me in washington much in the last uh last two months and i was out of the country the week of uh, in president's week so but i intend to have one at some point here
0: all right let's go back to the phone larry is in lancaster larry you're on the air Hello, Larry. All right. I guess Larry is not there. How about Bob and Lemoyne? Bob, you're on the air.
1: Hi. Yeah, just a quick question for the, Senator. the uh Why not go ahead and bite the bullet for, um, like, health care below, like a government-sponsored health care below a certain income level? Like above a certain income level, you know, afford it. But the big problem seems to be, you know, below this income gap. Why not just have a government taxpayer-funded, you know, insurance or below you know x amount
4: annual income
0: thanks all right thank you very far. much for call it sounds like he what he's advocating is kind of a, a medicare program
1: yeah it sounds like he's advocating um, yeah maybe that's what he is advocating but uh, the, the question that the the caller just uh um uh, the question he raised uh, makes an interesting point though what would be that income level be and would it be a hard cutoff that if you're below you know whatever the threshold is, you know fifty thousand dollars that would make you eligible for, uh, you know for some kind of a government health care program. But above that, you're on your own. I mean, I, that's the, that's the question, uh, and of course that creates its own set of incentives. Uh, you know for, you know if you're if you're any close to that, you're going to want to stay under the threshold so you can, you know, have to buy your own insurance. Uh, now I would only say this, but I heard a lot of discussion about Medicare for all. Uh, the challenge with that idea is that Medicare we'll go insolvent uh, for the 65-plus population. I, I simply think that if we, we open up Medicare for everyone, uh, which would be a full single-payer system for the country, I, I do think that would not solve our problems, uh, that we would have a, a very serious structural problems, similar to what they've got in Europe. Uh, and uh, and I, I just don't think that's the answer to our health care problems. We do have to create a, a marketplace that functions, particularly in this individual market, and that's what no one has got right. And I think the Democrats will acknowledge that the individual insurance market is broken under Obamacare. It wasn't doing well before Obamacare. Um, it was working in some states, not well in others. Uh, the point is, it's completely broken now under Obamacare. And that has to be, our, I think, one of our first orders of business is to repair that. Because we have to remember that in this country, over 170 million people uh, re, you know, receive their health care coverage uh, through their employers, it's 170 or 175 million. I think there's about another 70 or 75 million under under Medicaid, and probably about another 50 million or so, maybe 55 million on Medicare. Uh, and so, so for those populations, at least I'll say for the Medicare and for those with the employer-sponsored coverage, the system works pretty well. For Medicaid, uh, well, you know it is coverage, but it is not very good access. It's not easy to get in to see a physician. Let's face it, uh, Medicaid which is how many people under the health law receive their coverage, uh, is, is not providing very good access. Again, coverage does not equal access. So we do have to fix Medicaid. But we also have to accept the reality that Medicaid has been expanded, and I don't think that will necessarily be rolled back.
0: Well, let's uh, – I have an email here from Robin who asked a similar question. She said that uh, you mentioned that uh, Medicaid needs to be reformed. When the states run into trouble, they'll have to cut Medicaid, but the GOP plan is to cut Medicaid funding from the federal government through per capita caps. How do you suggest reforming Medicaid so that the states don't have to make these major cuts?
1: Well, look, the, the, the the issue on you – know, I, I understand per capita caps. I think that there is a lot to be said for that. The issue then becomes, for me, you know, at what level do we start? <laughs> What's the baseline of funding, I guess? That's really the issue. Because many states, both Republican and, with Republican and Democratic governors, uh, would like to have more flexibility in administering the Medicaid program. And I think we should give states greater flexibility. Now, that said, they, the states, whether they're Republican governors or Democratic governors, they want to make sure that the, uh, the initial funding they receive is sufficient. Uh, under the per capita cap or block grant or whatever the the method would be. So that's really the key issue here, I think, which speaks to your caller's question that, you know, Medicaid is always going to experience some difficulties. The question is what will be the initial funding level? And then what would be the rate of increase provided by the federal government uh, going forward? And that's really what's going to be uh, very contentious and I think going to be a a subject of a great deal more debate between the House and the Senate as we move forward on this bill as it relates to uh, Medicaid. Uh, That's, I think, the uh, the big question.
0: Let's go to Aaron in Harrisburg. Aaron, you're on the air.
3: Uh, Hi, thank you for taking my calls, guys. I I really appreciate this uh, discussion. I I really have two questions that are sort of uh, not related, but but I think both important issues. The first being there's there's been a lot of discussion on competition and incentivizing competition in the insurance market, Uh, but that's only you know half of the coin. The way healthcare works in America. you know, we purchase insurance and we negotiate with insurers who then have to go negotiate with providers. And over the last 10, 15 years, there's been uh, increasing consolidation in the provider markets throughout the country. Here in Pennsylvania, we recently had a, a Third Circuit uh, opinion in joining the merger between Hershey and, and, um, and Pinnacle. And, you know, had that merger gone through, they would have been able to demand a 5 to 10% price increase on insurers, which then gets passed on to consumers. So by only fo- focusing on one side of the coin, we're we're not really focusing on how to create a, a competitive markets in health insurance in a, you know in healthcare in America and why what is the bill doing um, or what is Congress thinking about doing with respect to the other side of the coin? That's my first question. The second question, uh, and then I'll take my comments off the air, is, is that um, uh, why is Congress not holding any hearings on this matter? It's a really important issue, and and they they've. Uh, suggested that there is no interest in in holding any congressional hearings either on the Senate or House side. All
0: right, thank you very much for your call. Let's start with competition, Congressman Dent.
1: Yeah, that was a, actually the first question was really very interesting. Um, you know, one of the one of the issues with the healthcare law is that I, I said this for a long time that the the care law, Obamacare, has essentially uh, incented or incentivized uh, many providers to get larger. That's what it's done. Um, And you see all these, you know, hospital mergers and acquisitions going on all over the, certainly over our state. And he pointed out the Hershey Pinnacle proposed merger, which was then struck down uh, by the uh, Federal Trade Commission uh, and I guess the courts ultimately. Uh, But the point is, the the law on the one hand, and this is why I was very critical, of the Obama administration, they created a law that basically was, uh, you know, forcing providers to get larger. And that doesn't necessarily mean less expensive. Less competition, as the caller correctly pointed out. And then when these, these, uh, these health care uh, providers like Hershey and Pinnacle, you know, basically do what they, are, they have been incentivized to do, then another arm of the, the Obama administration, the Justice Department and the FTC, step in and say, hey, this is a foul. Well, you can't, on the one hand, pass a law that tells them that they need to merge and consolidate and then, and then, then cry antitrust, you know, on the next, you know, right in the next breath. Uh, When in the case, and I, I was very critical of that uh, decision to um, uh, unravel the Hershey Pinnacle merger. I thought that was in the best interest of the people of South Central Pennsylvania and Dauphin County. Uh, But um, but obviously, uh, you know, those uh, in authority and administration felt otherwise at the in in Washington. Um, Now the second question dealt with hearings. Look, I, I think it's appropriate to hold hearings on these bills. Uh, and I suspect that there are going to be uh, – there's going to be a great deal more discussion on these bills, uh, particularly now that the, it's clear to me that the U.S. Senate is not going to take up the House bill uh, as is. So if, maybe if there aren't going to be House hearings, I suspect the Senate is going to have to have some hearings on, on health care uh, because this bill is uh, – from what I understand, it's not going to be uh, – if it were to pass the House, and I'm not clear that it will – if uh, it so were to pass the House, that it's not going to be taken up by the Senate in this form.
0: All right, let's go back to Larry in Lancaster. Larry, are you there?
1: Yes. Okay. The
0: yes, I can. Go right ahead. Yeah,
1: thank you for, thank you for taking my call. Um, what pe- a lot of people are missing is uh, how Obamacare uh, helps Medicare in uh, three ways. Um, the first, it extends the life of Medicare by about 10 years. It also, clo- it also uh, closes uh, the drug donut hole. And also, it provides uh, free physicals, um, both at the doctor's office and then another by a visiting nurse. Um, are we going to retain those uh, three things in Medicare? All right, thank that you. Obamacare yeah, the, the provides. Hole. Thank you. Yeah, the donut hole is going to be uh, n- nothing in the bill before us. Let me just uh, back up. But nothing in the bill before us would touch the donut hole. So the donut hole is protected. So are the you know the uh, this is Medicare, but the 26-year-old provision. Uh, is also uh, protected. Many people clearly are, are concerned about that. Um, let me just tell you. Let me just tell you a few things that are not included in the reconciliation bill. It's, uh, um, you know so um, you know preexisting condition provisions. They would be uh, protected. Um, so uh, you know so that would that wouldn't uh, that wouldn't change. Keeping young adults on their parents' insurance until age twenty six. Uh, banning annual lifetime. Uh, annual and lifetime limits. That's also uh, protected. Um, uh, the uh, <clears throat> the donut hole is protected uh, under Medicare, and uh, and I have to get back to him about the other two things. he uh, were the other two things he mentioned? I'm sorry. That's...
0: Well, he's talking about free physicals yeah. for one.
1: Yeah, yeah, and uh,
0: and and also uh, Medicare, Medicare, I should say Medicare, that uh, it would help fund it for another ten years.
1: Oh, okay. Well, well, about that piece. All right, that's. Uh, Yeah, uh, like, again, the reconciliation largely does not deal with Medicare. It's largely dealing with uh, Medicaid uh, and other issues there. So uh, largely the Medicare pieces are, I think, are left largely untouched. So I just wanted to share that with them. Particularly, I know the donut hole is not going to be impacted at all. Uh,
0: Quick question, Congressman. We had another caller who asked, why it has taken so long for Republicans to come up with a replacement plan?
1: Because it's hard.
0: You sound like the president. (laughs)
1: <laughs> no well, I said it's very hard i mean, I've always said this is very hard, never said it, I never pretended that this was easy um I mean, I always knew it was very difficult uh and that um and i always said that the that there are parts of this law that need to be parts need to be replaced, parts of it need to be reformed and overhauled and uh, uh parts of it need to be repealed i mean this is a this there's a lot of nuance here, and it, with this nuance comes complexity. Uh, and, uh, and I've always said, you know, the, the replacement piece is going to be hard. That's why you haven't seen one, at least one plan. There have been several plans proffered over the years, but there hasn't been one agreed-upon plan. Um, so, again, it's, it, it's, this is a, it, it, it's, it's challenging to get to one uh, plan that everybody, just not, not only a, that everybody can agree on, but just one the Republicans can agree on. Not to mention is try to get some Democrats on board, even though Democrats will tell you there are serious problems with this law that need to be fixed.
0: Congressman, we only have a couple of minutes left. I want to thank you very much for taking time uh, to uh, you know answer some of our callers' questions. I do have a, a question on another, uh, you know, going away from health care for just a moment. Uh, President Trump's been in office for just a little less than two months now. Your thoughts on the administration?
1: Well, it was a pretty rocky start. I think we have to acknowledge that, you know, that starting with the inaugural speech, which was, uh, you know, which was, uh, you know, rather inward looking, um, some would say dark. Uh, And then we had, you know, the the immigration, the immigration order that uh, was, you know, obviously uh, very, very poorly thought out, not well considered and frankly counterproductive. I spoke out against it at the time. Uh, Then we've gone through some other, you know, iterations and, you know, Twitter storms and, and I think there have been so many distractions that it has caused a, a number of problems. And I think he gave a an address to Congress on that Tuesday night that was, at least stylistically, um, you know, it was stylistically, it was measured, it was, uh, it seemed to be, uh, it, it was measured, careful, uh, not inflammatory, uh, and, um, and and I thought remarkably uneventful in a rather good way. And then immediately after the speech... That's not to say all the policy in there I agree with, but at least the tone and style and substance was, you know, presented, in a, I think, in a very reasonable way. And then, um, and then you know, following in, within a few days we're back on to, you know, the tweet about uh, President Obama supposedly tapping uh, candidate Trump's uh, people or him at the at Trump Tower. And that's, you know, and that was uh, obviously uh, you know, a tweet not based in, with any evidence or proof. Uh, and so I think that has really set things back a bit, and it's you know not helped you know in terms of advancing serious d- discussion on policy. And I think after the State of the Union address, many were hoping that the president would become more focused on, more focused and more disciplined in his message, and and and, and trying to stay on these issues of policy uh, that we all you know on on the economy, on health care, tax reform, infrastructure, things that I I think that you know people care about, and and probably part of the reason why he won the election. So um, that's where I think there's been a, a bit of a disconnect. Too much distraction, too much too much noise on things that are frankly not not always as, as consequential. You know, Arnold Schwarzenegger's ratings are you know aren't, aren't really that important as far as I'm concerned. Or crowd size, it really didn't matter. Or getting into election fraud. You know, I would say if you win the election, guess what? You don't call fraud. You won. I mean, the loser does that. And so we got into all these these uh, these distractions that I think have been uh, really, very unhelpful.
0: Mm. Republican Congressman Charlie Dent, hey, I want to thank you very much for being with us, Congressman, and uh, hopefully you can talk about some more issues in a time uh, very soon, okay?
1: Hey, thank you. Great being with you. All right.
0: You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Last month, Williams Natural Gas won approval. Williams Partners to say won approval from the Federal Energy Regulatory Committee to proceed with the construction of the Atlantic Sunrise Pipeline. The fuel transit system will move natural gas through 195 miles of pipe from the northeastern Marcellus shale region in northeastern Pennsylvania to southeastern Pennsylvania and even further south. Williams estimates it will meet the energy needs of more than seven million homes. The pipeline is to run through several miles of privately owned farmland in Lancaster. County. It also will run through, well, actually 10 counties in Pennsylvania, including Lebanon County in our area. Many residents in the region are fearful of the environmental impact of such a project. Groups opposed to the pipeline have been staging a protest on one of the properties. Joining us on the program today to bring us an update on this and some other issues having to do with Atlantic Sunrise is Marie Cusick, uh, WITF's State Impact Pennsylvania reporter. Marie, welcome to the program.
2: Great to be here, Scott.
0: Give us a call if you have a question or comment, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to SmartTalk at WITF.org. You can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at SmartTalkWITF, 1-800-729-7532. All right, let's talk a little bit about the protest in Conestoga Township, Lancaster County, because there have been things going on even up until the last few days there. But the protest right now, describe it. You were actually there. Describe what what someone would see if they went to that site
2: right so this is on a, a farm in Conestoga Township it's a private property the landowners there um, do not agree with this project and have not signed on to allow Williams to use their land for this pipeline so they've invited in dozens of people to st- set up a camp there um, so it you know it just looks very rural it's um, there's a big old tobacco farm they've been kind of using that as a meeting place and a base of operations but they're camping outside in the field they they're very organized actually they have a uh, You know, a food truck and a couple porta potties. Um, So the thing, it kind of ebbs and flows, but they're planning to have a you know a permanent camp there. Um, So people come on the weekends. They run trainings on nonviolent direct action, civil disobedience, kind of know your rights while you're protesting. So their plan is just to stay there as long as necessary and try to create kind of a physical blockade and some of them actually traveled out to North Dakota last year and were involved in the the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe protest against the Dakota Access oil pipeline which got a lot of National Press.
0: Well, let's talk about that. Uh, was that the inspiration for what's going on in Lancaster County?
2: I, I think it's fair to say that some of them traveled there and took inspiration from that. But frankly, this has been in the, the opposition here in central Pennsylvania against this pipeline has been in the works for years. And really, while that that um, protest in North Dakota got a ton of national attention, um, just because of some of the things that happened there. And of course, it was a, a lot of issues around tribal sovereignty. But really, if you zoom out and look around the country. There is a big pipeline building boom going on all over the country, and there's a lot of opposition all over the place. I mean, there was a camp in Florida that popped over, um, popped up over the Martin Luther King weekend, um, and there was actually a man who was shot and killed by police there recently because he was firing a gun at pipeline construction equipment. Um, there is a camp in New Jersey with some Native Americans um, against another pipeline. There's, you know, you just start looking at. Googling pipelines and uh, protest movements—it's all—it's going on all over the country.
0: Is this new, Marie? I mean, obviously we've seen protests uh, over the years, not just with pipelines, but about almost any kind of large project. You know, people talk about the NIMBY syndrome, not in my backyard. Uh, but it seems as though maybe it's getting more attention. Maybe more protests are popping up after Dakota Access.
2: I think what's happened is we've had about a decade of this huge domestic drilling boom, you know, with hydraulic fracturing, and these shale formations have un- unlocked a ton of oil and natural gas, and here in Pennsylvania, of course, we have the Marcellus Shale, but really there's just been this huge shift in the supply center of fossil fuels, and all this domestic drilling has happened, so this is really sort of part two of the drilling story, is that, you know, they've put in all these wells all over the country, and now they, just, they need the infrastructure to move the product around, um, so we in the Northeast, used to get our fuel would come up from the Gulf Coast and go northward, and now there's this just huge new supply center of natural gas in the Northeast. Um, so they want to build pipelines up to New England and and move it southward, and and so it's just um, there, it's just part of the transformation that we've seen with this shale boom.
0: Getting back to the protest in Conestoga Township against Atlantic Sunrise, uh, I you touched on this. You say stay as long as necessary. When is necessary? I mean, have they decided what's the ultimate goal?
2: Well, uh you know the company said they're really not planning to do a lot of construction until the second half of the year, but obviously they they feel like things could get going as soon as they <clears throat> excuse me have some more permits and and um, get you know condemnation proceedings going so they I think they're just planning on. Whatever whatever physical way they can they can block construction, they're going to do that and, and hope. And I think they told me too, right now there's a few dozen people there. but as you know as we sort of begin to get into spring and summer, they want to sort of gradually build this camp and and attract more people. I mean, they don't want thousands of people rushing in now uh, to try to be like the next new standing rock right immediately, but they want to slowly, in an organized way, get more people in.
0: When you say condemnation hearings, what do you mean?
2: So there's dozens of people along the route of this line that, that have not agreed to allow this pipeline. You know, many people did um, ne- pi- negotiate with Williams and came to an agreement about using their property, but um, many people didn't. So now, because the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission granted Williams the ability um, to get going on this, then now they're taking people to federal court.
0: So, I mean, one of the things that uh, many people who are a property owner along, not just this pipeline, but many others, uh, is eminent domain. That they're fearful. Yeah, that the people are just afraid. That uh, I just want to call it what it is. Right. That that uh, people are afraid that uh, the the government. I won't say the government. Basically, it is the government. But uh, that Williams will come in and say, "Okay, we need this piece of land. Here's the money that we're giving you for. We'll give you fair mar- market value, but." You, you have no choice.
2: Right. And that's what's happening with some of these people who have not agreed to allow the project through their land.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. Let's take some phone calls. Uh, Steve is in Dillsburg. Steve, you're on the air.
1: Morning, Scott. Thank you for taking my call. Yes, welcome. Uh, is there a reason why the governor can't or won't put a tariff on this fuel that's going through the pipes because none of it is benefiting the people in Pennsylvania?
0: Thank you very much for your call. This has been a major issue and one of uh, the the biggest uh, cries of the the, uh, protesters is that, I don't know if none is correct, but um, much of it will not benefit Pennsylvanians.
2: Well, this is more like they're building a super highway of gas, so when you get um, gas into your home, there are much smaller lines, distribution lines that, that pull it into homes and businesses. This is a big, large transmission line, but it is pulling the gas into the whole Transco system. That's the system that supplies gas um, to utilities and to businesses. Um, but this isn't really Governor Wolf's. Um, it, it's not really his call to it's do it. It's a federal thing. It's yeah. it's um, pretty much a federal issue. It's regulated by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. They're in charge with citing and approving interstate pipelines, which this is. It travels between states. And then in terms of safety issues, it's regulated um, with the U.S. Department of Transportation. So the state, you know. I, I did a story a few weeks ago. Governor Tom Wolf's administration had a big pipeline task force when, shortly after he came into office. They wanted to try to do a lot of more planning, coordinating, um, try to get, get a handle on this whole pipeline building boom. But, I mean, they don't have a ton of power in the situation, especially when it comes to interstate lines. This is largely regulated at, at the federal level.
0: Should have asked I should have asked uh, Congressman Dent what he thinks about it, because it does go part through part of uh, his district in uh, Lebanon County, for example. Uh, but just to you know step back for a moment where Governor Wolf does have some stay or some say one of the things he's asked for, and of course has asked since he's been in office, is for at the well site, at the where the drilling occurs for a severance tax, and he has proposed that again in this this budget that he is asking for.
2: Yeah. And, you know, I asked his budget secretary when they announced that, like, this has been kicking around Harrisburg for almost a decade now, and it's never passed. So what makes you think it's going to happen this year? And, you know, he just said, well, you know, he said, hopefully, the legislature will realize we're in pretty dire straits um, this year, and we need this. Um, But it certainly faced a lot of opposition from the industry and Republicans in the legislature. And, you know, who knows if, if that moves forward or not, but he's, he's asked for it. He ran on it. Uh, It hasn't happened yet.
0: You mentioned also that there are still some permits that are needed. I think a lot of people, it was a big hurdle when uh, FERC uh, gave the okay, but it wasn't the last hurdle. The permits that you were talking about.
2: Yeah, so these pipelines they do need state level permits. So um, water crossing when they cross water bodies from the State Department of Environmental Protection. And interestingly, I'll, I'll point to another Williams pipeline that um, goes north. It moves gas out of northeastern Pennsylvania. New York State actually refused to issue the um, per- water crossing permits for that pipeline. So that's you know that's being fought over right now. But um, as we all know, or many people probably know, New York is pretty unfriendly to the natural gas industry. They banned fracking a few years ago. So, yeah, but um, I don't see that from our state's Department of Environmental Protection. I'm sure they'll probably issue those permits.
0: All right, let's take another call from Brenda in Mount Joy. Brenda, you're on the air.
2: Hi, Scott and Marie.
4: Uh, nice to hear from you guys about this subject. I'm with uh, the group Tenfield Environment, Land, and People, and we're a West Tenfield group in Lancaster County that's part of Lancaster Against Pipeline. And um, we have one of the larger preserved farms in our township, and uh, the farmer has held off and held off, not allowing anyone onto his farm. And at this point, he feels he has no choice but to work with Williams. They're not really threatening letters. In one case, in Raffle Township, they knew the guy's um, credit uh, limits and what he could and could not afford. He talked to his neighbors and tried to convince them that he had signed so that they would turn against him. They it just gotten really nasty. And so this farmer in West Penfield feels he has no choice in order to protect his hog farm and his natural springs but to let Williams on his property. And, you know, we that's exactly how this whole site has been, feeling like we have absolutely no choice or to no stay in this. So we are really relying at this point on the DEP to not issue those water crossing permits. And, you know, I'm just wondering what we can do as landowners To encourage the DEP. I mean, we've tried reaching out to uh, our congressmen, we've tried reaching out to FERC, and we just never get anywhere.
0: Mm. Hey Brenda, thank you very much for your call. I don't know whether you could answer that last question or not, uh, but you know what their options are, but Brenda brings up again one of the big sticking points is we know that Lancaster County uh, is one of the pioneers in preserving farmland. And, you know, what Brenda just pointed out is there's at least one preserve farm. I don't know how many. Maybe you're aware of it.
2: I don't have the number at the top of my head, but that has certainly been a big issue around this pipeline. And Lancaster County is known nationally in planning circles for its farmland preservation efforts. Um, so that's certainly an issue people have raised again and again uh, with this pipeline. Um, as for how to interact with the DEP, I don't, I don't really know what to tell you other than often I go to public meetings and uh, there's no one really there from the public sometimes, you know, when the secretary's speaking or I was just at a budget hearing the other day and I didn't, you know, there's just a bunch of lobbyists sitting in the back. So, um, you know, you could, aside from writing letters or calling, you could just go walk up and, and talk to the secretary. I, I don't really know. I, I'm just surprised sometimes at the lack of Public engagement at some of these meetings I attend.
0: I am too, because I mean, obviously the people uh, that uh, are part of the environmental groups and those that are protesting that oppose Atlantic Sunrise and some of the other pipeline projects. I mean, that's getting involved. So you know, it's it's one thing to set up a camp on a, a piece well, of property, but uh, to not go to the meetings where things well, can actually. I'm occur. not
2: criticizing anyone. Well, I know you're not but criticizing. But I think they them, do. They have for, certainly if there's a meeting about. About the topic, people will come out, but there's all kinds of other meetings where you could go, go, you know, talk to, you know, people making decisions. And I think the reason they're setting up the camp, though, I will say, is they feel like they don't have any other recourse. I mean, so many people I've talked to around the country with different pipeline projects feel like FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which makes the decision, really. um, They just they feel like they don't listen to anybody, that they're just there to approve these projects. And they just, you know, go through the motions. and, And, you know, even one pipe, even the Penn East pipeline, which is another pipeline, and they had these weird kind of hearings last summer where they made everyone come into a private room and testify, you know, privately, uh, which people found... I know, I, I don't know. They don't, they didn't do that here in Lancaster at the meeting they had about the Atlantic Sunrise. I, so people just feel like, or other group, I talked to a guy in Ohio on about another pipeline who he felt like their group was not opposing the pipeline. They were not, like many groups opposed the pipeline, but the, this other, this is called the Nexus Pipeline. His group did not oppose it and they uh, just wanted it to be rerouted around what they felt were some densely populated areas and they worked had this whole back and forth with FERC and were you know talking to them and felt like they were getting somewhere and then they just got completely ignored in the final decision so I think generally there's just this feeling like this commission doesn't listen and so that's why you have camps popping up.
0: They need a new name. I don't like FERC. That doesn't sound...
2: Roll off the tongue.
0: It doesn't. Let's go to Joe at Camp Hill. Joe, you're on the air.
4: Thank you. Marie, you said something about farmland, and I'm sorry that I don't know more about pipelines. Do they lie on the ground, or are are they elevated? How would a farmer get a combine on the other side
2: of a uh, a pipeline?
0: And that's a basic question, isn't it?
2: Well, I'll say for, uh, you know... I think it was BP. They run these commercials where they're showing pipelines in Alaska, and they are above ground for some reason. But so maybe there are these images in your mind that they're above ground, but most of them are buried underground. And you can even see them all. You can see them all over the place now if you start looking. You know, the mountains in central Pennsylvania. I go up north towards State College a lot, and you just see. It looks like somebody kind of mowed the lawn of the forest over the mountain. It we can just,
0: see some from here. Yeah, you
2: can see yeah. them from our studios. So, um, And they're all over the place, buried underground. You're, they're usually out of sight, out of mind. And I will say, too, I think it's important for people to understand, there's about 2.5 million miles of pipelines um, underground right now, and um, we all use you know natural gas that's delivered to our homes to heat our homes and to produce electricity. It produces about a third of the power in the U.S. now. So... Um, this boom is affecting a lot of people. It's a very dispersed kind of in- infrastructure from the gas wells to the compressor stations to the pipelines. It's touching a lot of people's backyards. But I think it's important to remember there's a lot of this infrastructure underground that we live with every day already.
0: Let's uh, Before we get back to more phone calls, I wanted to talk a little bit about I mentioned that there have been things happening even up until the last few few days. Uh, the barn that uh, the protesters were meeting in in Conestoga Township, uh, there was a, a barn, an old tobacco barn as you, barn as you mentioned, that was condemned by the township. Said it was didn't meet zoning specifications. Now there has been an agreement, just Friday, on that. What was that?
2: Yeah, I just spoke to them. So I guess they're working with the township on two issues. There was the use of the barn, which they were meeting in that to have meetings. They weren't sleeping there or camping in there. But um, separately, the issue was that they're camping on the agriculturally zoned land. So they said they've applied for a special exception to camp on the land since that is zoned agricultural. And then they are writing a letter um, to the township to say that the barn is supposed to be used for agricultural purposes. So they're um, working with the township right now and said they're going to be using it for agricultural purposes, um, although they part, part of that is what they define as protecting the farm. So um, well, I think it remains to be seen how this is going to shake out. But this is also not an uncommon thing to happen when um, people set up these camps that the local government will, um, you know, start criticizing some of the things that they're doing. So... They certainly feel like it's just sort of an attack on their First Amendment rights, although certainly um, the, the local government has every right to enforce zoning and building codes.
0: John is in Lancaster County. John, you're on the air. Yeah, hi. How are you? Good. What's up?
3: Uh, well, I was calling mostly just to talk about, first of all, we have gone through every regulatory process and attended every meeting that we could to try to stop it, and and that's what led us to encampment and that's why we're at the place that we're at now um we haven't gained the support of like all of everybody in the community all of our representatives and we've been we've been working towards that but it's just it's it's hard to do and we try to stress that the same people who fight us and call us environmentalists and you know activists are not not remembering that like our basic freedom is being taken from us that our land is being taken from these individuals people who sit by while their neighbor's land is taken but if if one of their guns was threatened anything like that they they would lose their minds about it and so it's just um yeah, it's just concerning that people aren't stepping up more than they are right now.
2: All
0: right. Thank you very much for your call.
2: And, John, I, I will say there's another reporter I work with um, as part of a team of NPR reporters in Georgia who said this issue actually in Georgia has really united both um you know, people on the left, you might view as more environmentalists and people on the right, you know, it's a very conservative red state. And they're really upset about this private property rights issue. So I think that's another issue with this whole building boom across the country. Not only do you have people saying, hey, what about climate change? What about why are you building all this fossil fuel and just infrastructure when we need to pivot away from fossil fuels? You also have people saying, Excuse me. Don't I own my own land? Um, also, serious questions around: Is this all in the public need? Are we overbuilding? Um, and also questions around: You know, there's a glut of gas right now, and this is some of it's going to be exported. So when you try to sell sell this whole boom as domestic energy security, um, you know it really riles people up when their land is being torn up because you're exporting it. I'll mention the a different pipeline, the Mariner pipeline. Um, which runs from western Pennsylvania to an export terminal near Philadelphia. That's that a snoco project. And they're project. just building another line right now. Um, that is called the Mariner because that it's going across the ocean. It's going to Europe to be used. It's a natural gas liquids being used in European plastics manufacturing. So, um, even last summer, I was actually flying into the Philadelphia airport, and from the plane, I could see the giant tanker ship. Um, that said shale gas for Europe, and that's what they're loading up. It's going to Europe. So when people in, um, you know, central Pennsylvania are having their farms torn up, their backyards torn up, or places they felt like, you know, were protected areas... For the European plastics industry, I mean, it's it's just a hard it's a hard thing to sell sometimes when it's it's not being used here.
0: Marie, we only have a couple of minutes left. I a couple, want to touch on a couple more issues. You mentioned before you came on the air that uh, you spoke to someone about the weather tomorrow.
2: Yeah, actually, that was John who I just talked to. Yeah. John's oh one, yeah. Oh okay.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But what what did what what, what more was
2: said? So uh, the weather, obviously. Uh, you know, he. I spoke to him before I came on the show, and he um, was saying that over the weekend, which was very cold, they they still had about 30 people camping. But as the storm approaches, they're going to really try to pull most of the people out of there. They're going to have a few, a handful of diehard people that are prepared to go through this, whatever it ends up being, this winter storm. Um, but they, they're trying to pretty much scale it back for the next couple of days.
0: Does this have potential? We only have about a minute left. Does this have potential to reach... The, the the level of what happened in North Dakota.
2: I mean, who knows? I can't predict the future, but I know it is certainly, um, it is part of a bigger national movement going on. This one in particular is getting a lot of national press. I know they've had Reuters, they've had... Um, I think they told me National Geographic called them and they want to come. I mean, it's a it's sort of well situated for them in like the kind of I-95 corridor of the northeast. I mean, Standing Rock got all these people and that's really out in the middle of the the continent. Um, So we'll see what happens. I I mean, I don't know what's going to happen, but certainly it's uh, it's part of a it's part of a growing uh, opposition towards these projects.
0: Marie Cusick is WITF State Impact Pennsylvania reporter Marie, thank you very much for being with us today You're very welcome State Impact Pennsylvania is a collaborative effort between WITF and WHYY in Philadelphia to report on Pennsylvania's energy economy. Speaking of the storm, that will be our focus on tomorrow's program. We're anticipating that uh, we've heard, I've heard anywhere from eight to 22 inches of snow. So we'll have complete storm coverage coming up tomorrow at nine on WITF Smart Talk.